are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Mark 9, 30-37 They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. And Mark ten thirty-five through 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indigent with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, thank you, Megan. Well, it's sports that we have to thank for this phrase, the greatest of all time, the GOAT, which I think is ironic, you know, hearing that now, because years ago, you used to talk about the GOAT as the person who was blamed for the loss, right? In fact, I was trying to remember, you know, was this used as an acronym when I was young and It wasn't. I found out that this is a 2000s thing, maybe even just the past 10 years where it's really caught along. And I also found out that it was first used, this is interesting, by Muhammad Ali in 1992. So pretty fitting that Ali would come up with this as an acronym, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. And he did it, it was actually his wife Lonnie, to create G-O-A-T Incorporated, which was then to basically legally protect his name and his brand. So that was 1992. Then we get to the year 2000, the year I graduated from high school, and LL Cool J put out the album Goat, G-O-A-T, and he had picked it up from Ali. So that's the origins of this. And nowadays, 2021, any sports fan knows what is meant by the GOAT. And I thought it'd be fun this morning. I know we have athletes and sports fans who are here in worship, and I thought it would be fun to quiz you on who you think the greatest of all time is 
in each of the four major American sports? And there's not really an official answer to these questions. I'm just going to see if your answer matches mine, and we'll see how you did. Here in the state of hockey, we're going to start with that. After you get a guess, we'll show the picture up front. So who's the greatest of all time in hockey? Yes, number 99, Wayne Gretzky. All right, well, let's go to football next. The GOAT is pretty much settled after last Super Bowl, right? So the GOAT in football is, yes, number 12, Tom Brady. Now, how about basketball? This has been debated, hasn't it? Is it LeBron? No, it's number 23, Michael Jordan. There he is. Now, let's go to summer, our fourth and final one. It's baseball season. So the greatest of all time, I'm going to quote the Sandlot first, just to give you a little clue. The Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino, the Babe Ruth. Now, if you've been watching baseball this summer, anybody been watching baseball? All right, there's somebody they're starting to compare to the Babe. Some even say that he's better. Some say it's way too early to say such a thing. But we are seeing something in baseball we haven't seen in a century. And his name is, thank you, Logan, Shohei Otani. Number 17 with the Angels, pitching 100-mile-an-hour fastballs, leading the league in home runs. It's absolutely amazing stuff. And you've got to watch the home run derby here in the All-Star break. So maybe, I think it's a little early, but maybe someday Shohei Otani will replace Babe Ruth as the GOAT. We'll see. So that's the sports world. But how about our world and our more ordinary lives? Unless I miss somebody, I don't think any of us are pulling a paycheck from a professional sports team. And yet greatness and success can be just as much on our minds as for anybody else. And so we're asking ourselves this morning, how do I compare myself to others? How do I promote my own self-interest? How do I seek to get ahead of others and to get recognition? Today as we study Scripture, we have the chance to think about what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And I tell you what, it is going to look way different and be defined very differently than anywhere else. In our study of Mark, we are getting to the point in the gospel now where Jesus is doing a whole lot of teaching about discipleship as he prepares his disciples for what's ahead. The window is closing, and so we see him even drawing away just to spend quality time with his disciples and pour into them and prepare them for after he's gone. So today we have these two stories side by side. Just like last week, we did this same kind of thing. They're a chapter apart, and we see how Jesus is emphasizing this teaching on greatness and just how much the disciples struggled to grasp it as we move from chapter 9 to chapter 10. So let's look at story number one. The scene is in Galilee. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and he's teaching them privately. So we don't have these huge crowds that are around. And he's telling them what's up ahead for him. And he says in verse 31 that we read, 
The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, Son of Man, which you read all over the Gospels, is this term that Jesus would use to refer to himself. It's from the Old Testament, from prophecy, especially we think of this passage in the book of Daniel, which I'll mention later. And Jesus is telling his disciples about his arrest and crucifixion, and even a preview of the empty tomb. But it says that the disciples don't get it, and they don't speak up and ask their questions. Is it okay to ask Jesus questions? Yes, the disciples don't do it. Instead, they fall into arguing the rest of the road trip home. Has anyone ever found that happening in the back seat on a long road trip? Or kids, have you ever heard it from the front seat at the end of a long road trip? We can all get tired and a little testy with each other. And so Jesus and his disciples, they finally arrive back in Capernaum, which is their home base in Galilee. And Jesus says, hey guys, what were you arguing about there back on the road? And the disciples don't say a thing. So somehow, whether he'd overheard them or he just supernaturally knows, Jesus has busted them and none of them wanted to own up to it. I remember our RD from my college dorm pulling our entire floor of freshman guys together after a prank had been pulled on our rival floor. And the RD had us all down the hallway and he says, okay guys, who did it? And you have never heard a bunch of college guys be so quiet before. It was like a library. No one said a peep, even though around that whole group, people knew who was responsible. So the RD says, okay then, if those responsible don't step forward, then you will all bear the consequence. Every single man, you have until this time tomorrow to turn yourselves in. After a restless night of sleep, the culprits did turn themselves in, and I remember doing a lot of hours of community service to finish that semester. (laughs) This isn't in my notes, but do you want to know the prank? (laughs) Cut me off if I've told this story. I'll make it very quick. At lunchtime from the cafeteria, we grabbed some extra bread. We had this planned out. That evening, we took our bed sheets and our pillowcases, and we went to the local park. We lured and captured ducks, put them in our pillowcases, took them back to our rival floor in the dorm, and released them. (laughs) So animal control had to be called the next day. Anyway, kids, if you ever need any ideas, I'm here. (laughs) All right, back to Mark 9. This is in my notes now. The disciples don't say a word. They know they've been caught. And they knew that out on the road, they had in fact been arguing of all things about which one of them was the greatest. And remember the reading that this follows right on the heels of Jesus telling them about the cross. And this is where they go next. David Garland has a wonderful description in his commentary. He says, Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to his sacrificial death while his straggling disciples 
push and shove, trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. And I read this and I think it's like looking in the mirror. You know, Jesus has gone to the cross for us. But how do we so, even in the church, find ourselves pushing and shoving to be first in line? Well, the disciples are not going to fess up, but Jesus knows. And so he pulls them together in Capernaum, probably at Simon Peter's house, probably was their hub for ministry. And he says in verse 35, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. One of my favorite professors in seminary in Los Angeles was a man named Joe Hellerman. His expertise was Greek, the New Testament, and the social customs of the Greco-Roman world. That had been his PhD at UCLA. And he was one of those professors who just loved to teach. And we have educators here aplenty. And you know this kind of teacher that steps into the room and is just energized by their material Dr. Hellerman, he loved to teach the Bible. He brought that kind of energy to the classroom. And Dr. Hellerman had been a lifelong California kid, and he lived in Hermosa Beach. And so along with teaching and serving in his local church, his number one hobby was to go deep sea fishing. And he would come and he would tell us the craziest fishing stories And I remember walking up to him as the Minnesota kid and asking him, Dr. Hellerman, have you ever heard of a walleye? I honestly don't think he ever had. So, (laughs) Totally different kind of fishing, and we would hear these stories. So that's Dr. Hellerman, and it was from him that I learned so much about the social world of the Gospels. I'm so thankful because then I get to share it here, and we get to learn and grow together. And these are the very things that Jesus is addressing here. You see, their entire social structure was arranged around honor. And probably ours is too. It's just a little bit more subtle, isn't it? But for them, it showed up in what kind of job you could have or not have. It showed up at what seat you sat at at a dinner party. It showed up even in the kinds of clothes that you wore and the the color toga that you happened to wear. Recognition and status were on display for everybody to see. And protecting and improving your status was the number one goal for anybody in their culture. And so imagine the disciples' reaction when Jesus says, anyone who wants to be first, that is the goal of your existence, right? He says, you must be very last and the servant of all. In his book, When the Church Was a Family, that same Dr. Hellerman wrote, again and again, Jesus taught and modeled for his disciples a single non-negotiable truth that humility and sacrifice constitute the quintessential qualities for leadership in the kingdom of God. To demonstrate that point, what does Jesus do next in the story? He picks up a little kid. Actually, it says taking a child in his arms, and the Greek word indicates a bent elbow. So this child is little enough that Jesus is able to cradle him or her in his arms. And he picks up this little one, and he says, verse 37, 
Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Now that is just the coolest picture to think of Jesus holding a little child and teaching. But I need you to transport yourself back into the New Testament and stop thinking of this as so cute and precious. It is much more profound than that. What Jesus does here is revolutionary, and here's why. Michelle alluded to it as she spent time with the kids. A child on the social ladder of their time was the lowest possible station. A child had virtually no status, no rights, and no value. Now where are we, just to compare and contrast? We tend to be the opposite in our culture today. Our life can revolve around children. You know, like hashtag social media, right? My whole world is my kids, even to our detriment. In our culture, little children, when they're real little, they get characterized as innocent and pure and sweet. But not in the first century. There were no romanticized ideas about children. They were seen as dependent, weak, and under the authority of others. So Jesus scoops up this little child, and what he's doing is not something cute. He is reversing their whole value scale. And he is saying, greatness is when you welcome the unimportant and the overlooked. Greatness is when you serve the person who is insignificant. Greatness is not found, my disciples, by fighting for position or attaining certain status. Jesus is saying to them, greatness will come by humility and by being a servant of all. So what do we make of that? You think that kind of perspective could solve just a few problems in our world today? And yet don't miss that this teaching is tied to what? Where'd the passage start? It is tied to Jesus talking about the cross. You know, you cannot just pull humility out of thin air as some noble human ideal. That is never going to work because it doesn't address the root problem that we're a mess and you first have to address the heart before you will ever successfully address an attitude or behavior. There has to be a source beyond ourselves that sets us free and then teaches us to serve. We're going to come around to some more personal application in just a moment. But first, I'd like to bring in the second story now. And so look at Mark chapter 10 with me. This is, as we said, just one chapter later. And the disciples have forgotten the lesson already. Perhaps it's because now they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're approaching the capital city and maybe thinking to themselves, well, we know Jesus has been talking about getting arrested and his death, but maybe he's going to change his mind now with the skyline on the horizon. And maybe, in fact, we're going to march into the city and crown Jesus as king. Or maybe James and John have actually come to terms with him talking about his death, and so they're thinking, well, who's going to lead 
when Jesus is gone. Whatever the case, this is the only place in the whole gospel where James and John act outside the involvement of Peter. Isn't that interesting? Otherwise, they're a unit. These three, the inner three, who are closest to Jesus, they've just been up the Mount of Transfiguration with him. And earlier in the chapter, we see Peter get somewhat reprimanded. Uh, tends to happen in his life. And that has happened earlier in this chapter. So maybe James and John are seeing a chance to oust him from his leadership role. Matthew tells us that their mother was involved in this request. Whatever was motivating it, we have this picture of James and John coming to Jesus and asking to sit at his right and his left in glory. So they picture Jesus on the throne and that they are the co-chairs on either side of him. Which is a pretty audacious request, isn't it? But they've heard Jesus talking about the Son of Man. Maybe they're thinking, Daniel 7, we know that verse. It says there was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And they're thinking in their Greco-Roman world, that sounds like exactly what we want. So James and John are saying, we better call shotgun and get the front seats. And Jesus says to them, he says, guys, you have no idea what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with my baptism? And he's talking there in metaphors about his suffering and death. And what do they say? The boys say, oh yes, we can. Just full of bravado and confidence. Can you believe these guys? Yes, we can, if we're at all honest about ourselves. John Stott wrote in his book, The Way of the Cross, the world and the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements. How many have done that with our life before? So James and John are not that far off from any of us. And yet little did they know that one day they would receive Jesus' cup and baptism. Acts 12, it is one sentence that is all the attention that's given to it, but James is put to death by the sword by King Herod. And John, what would happen to his brother? He'd be exiled by Emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos where he would live in a cave. So Jesus says to them in Mark 10, Yes, James and John, you will drink the cup and be baptized like me. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. And if I may quote Garland once more, he says, Jesus cannot promise them co-chairs, but he can promise them that they will suffer. And that is a sobering word to us today. Our life can be so shaped by the pursuit of comfort and the quest for success. But those things are simply not the priority anymore if you have decided to get up and follow Jesus. Well, at this point in the story, the other ten disciples hear 
what James and John have been up to, and they are irate about it. You can imagine that the tempers flaring and the fisticuffs about to break out. So notice what Jesus does in verse 42. Leadership 101, right here. He called them together. Conflict resolution. He calls them back together and he corrects the whole team. This isn't just about James and John. Every one of them struggles with self-seeking and power-grabbing. That's why the ten were so indignant to begin with. And Jesus says to them, look guys, you know how the world works. Maybe to us he would say, look, you know how American culture and value scales look. How kings and emperors lord it over others and exercise their authority. And then he says, forwards. He says, not so with you. And these four words sum up the way of following Jesus. It is radical. It's upside down. It will have you swim straight against the cultural current that you see in school, in work, in your neighborhood, in our community. Jesus continues and he says, instead, whoever wants to become great, there's that word again, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. To go back to Dr. Hellerman's class, you can imagine on the chart of Greco-Roman society where servants and slaves appeared. They were with kids at the bottom. A servant, diakonos, was somebody who waited tables. And a slave was even worse off. They had no rights at all. A slave was owned by another human being and could only do their master's bidding And Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be slave, doulos of all. Where in your life are you reading God's word this morning and you realize you need this correction from Jesus? I'm asking myself this morning, where in my life Have I been looking out for myself instead of looking out for others? Where in my life have I been trying to climb ladders of achievement and success instead of getting down low? We have no better model than the one who gives us these words. Jesus, the Son of God, who left the throne of heaven To come to earth as one of us. Philippians chapter 2, if you want to do some reading later today. Philippians 2. He emptied himself, it says. He made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. By appearing in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And my brothers and sisters, it is the cross where this story finishes today. 
I do not think it is coincidental when this arrived two days ago, the Timbaro translation, I do not think it is coincidental that on the back side it says this, Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Sometimes God underlines things for us, doesn't He? Jesus, the greatest of all time, came to give his life for you and for me. And to show us how great he truly is. In closing, I want you to know today that you have been set free from pursuing your own greatness. You are free from comparing yourself to others. You are free from having to look out for your own self-interest. And you are free from having to get ahead and get recognition. You get to live another kind of way and to know the greatness of God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for setting us free from these things. We thank You this morning that You did pay our ransom and You've put us on a new path. And we confess, Lord, how selfish we can be even after we have decided to follow You. How fixated we can be on our own well-being or our own families or our own level of comfort. And we ask, Lord, that Your Word would come alive in our lives in a new way that by the power of Your Holy Spirit You would make us into people of humility and sacrifice. Lord, today and this week, in very practical ways, would You teach us how to get low and to serve others the way that You have shown us. And Lord, we want to praise You in advance for all that You will do and that You have seen fit to glorify Yourself in our humble little lives. We pray together in the great an awesome name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.